the vineyard. And one of the sons said to his dad, no way, I hate going out in that vineyard, it's hot, it's, it's terrible work, and I want to hang out with my friends. So he said no. But then he went off to his room, and he got kind of feeling, thinking about it, and kind of felt a little guilty, and then finally said, you know, maybe I will go do it. And so he went out, and he worked in the vineyard. The second son, when his father asked him, would you go and work out the vineyard, he said, okay, Dad, I'm going. And, you know, anything you ask, I'm going to do. I like to do the things you ask me to do. And so he told his dad yes, but then as he walked away, he got kind of distracted. He was on his cell phone, you know, he was just playing around and talking with his friends. And then he didn't really feel like going after all, got kind of tired and took a nap and never went to the vineyard. Now, which one of the sons did what the father wanted? Of course, the first one. You may recognize this as a slight retelling of the parable that Jesus told the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests when he was talking about the men in the vineyard. And it's interesting that this, this passage is kind of the background for what we're going to read this morning in James. Remember what we talked about, that James and Jesus were half-brothers. And so there's a family resemblance. You can hear the shades of Jesus in James' words. And so you're going to hear that as we go into this passage today from James 2. And this is a key passage of James. You're here for the, for the, for the key point of all of James, right? This is the pinnacle. This is kind of the point of James. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. He says, this section of James is the main thesis of the book. Everything before this passage is like an arrow pointing forward to it. And everything after is like an arrow pointing back. It's the apex of the pyramid in James' mind. So, that you're excited, right? Let's read it. It's from James 2, verses 14 to 26. Let's read it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. It's significant to me that both James and Jesus in the passage I read in the parable before is speaking to religious people, chief priests, rulers, Christian people, believers scattered abroad. He's speaking to people like you and me, church, church people. And he's saying what he's kind of been saying all along the book of James, which is you say that you're religious, you say you believe these things, but let me see your actions. Are, are your actions matching what you've done? We've been already kind of down this path with James before. And, and he's saying, if you're going to call yourself religious, then let's act like it. In some senses, I think God has less problem with the person who never claims to have a faith at all, who's a worldly person, who says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any of this stuff, and I'm going to do what I want with my life. 
I like helping someone, I'll help them. If I don't, I don't. It's, for, it's my life, I'm gonna do what I want with it. In some ways, there's some integrity to that, right? At least they're being real. That's how they believe that's what they're gonna act. And how much worse, in a sense, is it that when we're saying we're a Christian, and yet our actions aren't really following after our faith. That's really what James, where's the integrity in that? Well, we put our money and our time and our energy where our mouth is and be what we say we believe. Are we going to get real this morning, church? Can I say get real? Get real. We're going to get real this morning as we get into this passage. Now, before we kind of go down through it and get some practical stuff for us, let me just tell you that this passage has given theologians real problems over the years. Okay, this is like the trouble text of the New Testament, one of them anyway, because um, it was... It was kind of a problem. It seemed to fly in the face of the idea of the gospel of grace. In fact, Martin Luther hated this passage and really the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw. Meaning, you know, straw is like the least valuable kind of building material. And, you know, in his mind, it should, I think he acknowledged it should be the Bible, but he kind of thought of it as on a lower tier than the gospels or the, or the weighty books of Paul, like Romans and Galatians. And, um, you know, he just had trouble with it because of this passage. Um, it was one of the last books to be actually admitted into the canon when they were putting the canon of the Bible together at the end of the 4th century. So it has given some theologians trouble. Why? What is it about this book that has given theologians trouble? It's the statement, faith without deeds is dead. Sounds like you need to have good works in order to be saved. Almost sounds like salvation by works. How many good deeds did you do? That proves your faith. Um, it almost reminds me of the show The Good Place. Who's watched The Good Place here? Anybody? It's, it's a very funny show. I think Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. It's really funny. But the point of the show is people die and then they're either sent to the good place or the bad place. And the way it works is all your good works are added up. All your good deeds are added up in a point system. So they find this out in the middle of the show, right? That, that there's a point system where you do a really good, good deed, like you, know, you, you give a kidney to somebody or you do something really, really sacrificial. You get a lot of points for that. And if you do a little good deed, you get a little bit of points for that. But that's all in your positive column. And then on the negative column, you got all your bad deeds, right? So your big bad ones, if you murder somebody or you really do something bad, you know, that's counted against you. Big points. But if you do a bad little white lie, that still counts against you, but it's a little bit of points. And that, the idea is, at the end of the day, you add up all the pluses and the minuses, and if you net out positive, you go to the good place. And if not, you don't. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny the way they put it, but it's interesting that I actually think a lot of people think it's going to happen something like that. It's kind of classic salvation by works. It's what most people say. I'm just trying to be a good person. I think what I've done that's good outweighs the bad, and I think I'll get to heaven. Like, that's how a lot of people think about it. And fighting this idea is what the Protestant Reformation was all about, one of the things it was all about. It's one of the things that as evangelicals we really believe is not how it works, but the gospel is about grace, not about works. You can't possibly earn enough good points to get in front of a holy God. No, we needed the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect lamb who was sacrificed for us. We needed his blood to cover our sins, to forgive us of our sins, so that we could come before him. It's grace. It's, it's we are saved by the grace of God through faith, not by works. That's the gospel. Solo gratia, they said in the Reformation. Only grace. Only by grace. And so 
we have to realize that that's our gospel. Um, Paul talks about this many times, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift saying faith without deeds is dead. In fact, it gets worse. In verse 2.24, if you'll remember, I read it, so the end of the passage, it says, you see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. What's this about? Is Paul and James, are they in conflict with each other? Was Paul correcting James in his books when he wrote his epistles? And this is, you know, what's, what do we do with this? This is why theologians have debated this passage for many, many years. I was not saying that for me to unpack this all theologically would take a lot longer than, than this, this sermon. But one of the things that I appreciate is this idea is that they, each Paul and, P, and James come from a different place and are speaking in a sense to a different audience. One of the uh, commentators, a Scottish theologian, William Barclay, puts it this way, and I think this is helpful. James and you. Nowhere is he saying that's going to make you righteous or a new creation or get you into heaven. That's only by the grace of God. Let's never forget that church. But what he is saying is that good works, caring for others, working for, on our anger and our tongues, being generous with our finances and resources, that should be the fruit that comes from our faith. It comes down. The evidence of that inner work of God in our life, the transformation is good deeds done in faith. In fact, I talked about that a little bit last week, and at the end, I kind of had this vision of God wanting to pour his love into us like a big basin, like water pouring into a big basin. But for what? To just sit in the basement, basin and get stagnant? No. <laughs> to flow out through the pipes. I talked about let's unclog the pipes that's flowing out to the people around us. That's God's desire for us. He's filling us up so that we can pour out. If we claim to have faith, but that people quote Paul, I just read him, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that passage about by grace alone, but they forget to go on to the next verse. It happens a lot. You pick up scriptures and don't read the whole passage. So I'm just, I just have to show you what happens in verse 10. So Ephesians 2, 8, to 8 and 9, it says for a
go out and do good in the world so that we can do good deeds. God's already prepared them for us. So that's, that's what this verse is about. James would have agreed with Paul. Paul would have agreed with James. They would have said, yeah, good job, guy. High five. You know, that was a great word. So let's talk about this passage that I read at the beginning. There's actually five examples in this passage of this, this, this interplay of faith and works. And this is not theological anymore. Now we're going to get real practical. This is going to be in, in your life. How is this supposed to interact in our life? So I want to go through these little five, five scenarios. The first scenario is an example of faith without deeds. This is kind of his main point. the argument about is is faith about a spiritual salvation where we just get right with God in our spirits or is faith about social justice and being, being and bringing salvation and freedom to the poor and, and relieving the prisoners and setting free the oppressed is, which one is about see there's an argument out there right there's some people who say look what really matters is that people are saved I mean, this world is hard, they might be poor, they might be oppressed, whatever, but the real important thing is that their heart is saved and that their soul is saved and they get to be with Jesus in heaven. So let's just focus on that, let's forget about all that other stuff, this is what we're supposed to do. There's a whole line of thinking that way. But there's also a whole line of thinking that says, no, no, but God, when God said he's come to set the prisoners free, he meant here on this earth, and so we should be focused on, on social justice, we should be so focused on prison reform, we should be focused on feeding the poor and helping the oppressed, that that's what we should be doing. And James, right here in print, in two lines, says to us, what is the gospel? It's both. It is both a spiritual gospel. Yes, we need to be saved. We need to know God in our hearts, be saved before him and, and our spirits reconciled to God. But yes, also, it better come out in how you feed your brother. It better come out in how you treat the person next to you who's suffering. God is a God of the whole person. The gospel is a gospel of the whole person. Spirit, body, mind, and soul. So right there we have it put to rest, this debate. And, and, and I don't know about you, but this little passage always convicts me. Every time. Anybody else convicted by this very simple statement? I mean, I just think about how many times has someone said to me, oh, would you please pray for me? I'm going through such a hard thing. Would you pray for me? Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then I walk away. And it's gone. <laughs> Completely forgotten, right? Like, it's just gone. I didn't pray. Or I, you know, I know that someone needs something, and I think, oh, I should sign up to help for that, or I should, I should do whatever for that, and then I get busy, busy, and then I forget to do it at all. I don't do anything. Does anybody else relate to that? Or just me? <laughs> Okay. It's really hard sometimes to do this very simple thing. And also, my mind then will begin to spiral because I'll think, how many homeless people on the street have I walked by and not given anything to? How many poor people do I know are out here in Greensboro, all over this place, that I have not helped? How many trafficked women are there out in the world that I have not done a thing to help? How many people who are oppressed I have not stood up for and helped to be set free? How much have I not done? And I can get overwhelmed. Because there's so much need out there, right? There are so many poor people. There are so many oppressed people. There are so many people struggling. And so I think, I'll never be able to do anything. My work is going to be like a drop in the bucket. And so then I say, well, maybe I'll just pray for them. And then I forget to pray for them. <laughs> James would have had no patience with that nonsense. He would have said, of course, you're not meant 
to feed every poor person and take care of every person who's oppressed, set free everyone. He's saying, your brother and sister, or sister, is without clothes or food. So it's very practical. <coughs> who is it right around you at this very moment who needs a hand, who needs some help, who needs a listening ear, who needs a little food or money or clothes, or who just needs you to listen and to care about their situation? Who is it? I guarantee you right now, if you just take a minute and you say, Lord, who am I supposed to be caring for right now? Who's going to bring someone to mind? Something to mind. One issue, maybe, not all the issues in the world. One area. Are we doing anything? It's not if we're doing it all. It's are we doing something? Are we doing one thing? My old pastor used to like to say, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. in college. 
Kahloot, who taught religion. That was his study, and I'm pretty sure he was an atheist or at least an agnostic. So he didn't believe any of it, but he knew so much about Christianity and Islam and Judaism and, and all the different religions, and he could talk all about it. He knew way more than most Christians do about Christianity. But in one sense, he didn't know anything about it because he'd never taken it on for himself. It was all just academic, interesting, fascinating social phenomena. Sometimes that's where some of us can land and not get the house. By no means am I comparing any of us to demons. Demons, in addition to having only head knowledge, are also working actively against God, right? So, so that's a different category. But some of us also get stuck in this place where our our, our, our thoughts about God is all in our heads, and we haven't let it sink down into our hearts. We know it's true on some level, but we, we can't quite open up our hearts to God. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's just stubbornness and not wanting to like have our will you know, submitted to anyone else. And sometimes it's we're not sure there's doubt. So, so, so we have it up here. We think it's probably true, but we have not asked Jesus into our life. There's an image, you know, in the scripture of Jesus knocking at the door. So it's as if he's out on the porch, you know, and the door's there, and you're like, yeah, I know that's Jesus out there. I know he's the son of God. I know he's done but, but you don't really want to open the door. You know what I'm saying? And if that's where you are this morning, that you say, you know, I, I know it's true, but I just haven't stepped through that door. I haven't opened it up to let him in. You know, if that's where you are, that's where you are in your spiritual journey. Be real with God about that. Tell him, but I urge you to take that next step. Maybe just open the door a crack. Let, let, let him peek through. Have a little conversation at the door. Because Jesus wants to come into our life. A purely mental belief in God does not make us a Christian. Does not bring us into relationship with God. No matter how many church services we go to and Bible studies we know. Even how many good deeds we do. True faith is the surrender of the heart and soul and mind to God. It's repentance, turning from our sins, and being made a new creation of Christ. I invite you to come into that relationship with God this morning. It's there for you. It's there for anyone. Now, finally, we get to two last examples that are finally positive examples of the working of faith in deeds. This is how we're supposed to, what we're supposed to learn from here is, is some good examples. First one is Abraham. So let's talk about him for a moment. It says in And in Genesis 15, God spoke to him and made a promise. He said in Genesis 15,
Uh, the Jewish people, this is their Hebrew scripture, so they need to, to grapple with this passage as well. I said, what do you do with this, with this kind of God, you know, that would ask this sort of thing? And he said, oh, no, we see this very differently. He said, I see, we see that this is a moment when God distinguishes himself from the other gods. Because in the last moment, he says to Abraham, don't do it. I'm providing you the sacrifice. I'm not that kind of God. You're not going to be sacrificing children to the Almighty God. And so he distinguishes himself as different. But here's the point that James is making by bringing this story up. He says, Abraham was willing to act. Even in this extraordinary way, even in this incredibly difficult way, he was willing to, to obey unwaveringly what the Lord said. And so his faith and his actions are working together. That God delivers his son to create a great nation of The fifth Let's get to Rahab. Verses 25 and 26. In the same way, it was not even. Big man of God, you know, father of a nation, very important, prominent person. And then you've got Rahab, this Gentile. And a prostitute. So she's kind of the lowest of the low in that society. And I think what James is trying to say here, I'm giving you two examples, people. One is a really great person, and one's a really low person. And that means everybody in between. And this applies to all of us. None of us get exempted from this, this word. And so what happens to Rahab? What is it about? Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho uh, at the time when Israel was about to attack Jericho and destroy the city. They were this part of the promised land that God had promised to them. They knew they were going to be able to take it. And so they sent spies into the land to see it. And Rahab ends up hiding the spies. In fact, she says that all the people had heard about the Lord. They heard what he did in Egypt, setting the, setting the slaves free. They heard about the Red Sea business. And they're all terrified. She said, we're all melting in fear. I love that phrase. They're all melting in fear because of, of the God of the Israelites. And she makes this marvelous declaration of faith. She says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. So she has faith. She, she believes this is the real deal. Now, how does she prove her faith? Through action, right? That's what this is about. We see she acted. She risked herself by hiding the spies. She even lied to King Jericho. So King Jericho, the king of Jericho, came to her and said, I know you got spies. Hand them over. She don't know they left already. Meanwhile, they're hiding up on her roof. As just kind of an aside, this is a really fascinating case of God commending the use of a lie. It's an interesting topic for another series. <laughs> just leave that out there. A couple of those in scripture. But she lets them out a rope through her window. Um, they are saved. They repay her kindness by rescuing her out of there before Jericho is taken down. And her, so her faith, he's giving us this example. Her faith, she stated what she believed, but she backed it up by risk taking action. It's a high risk move for her. And God honors her for her faith. Not only is Rahab honored by being saved in that moment, but she ends up being the great, 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 great grandmother of King David and is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. see it by her actions, it was palpable. Great example, right? Five examples. Three not so good. Two, which show us that our faith and our actions need to be in concert with one another. We talked, I talked early in this series about being people of in 
integrity of, of wholeness. That what we are like at home is the same as what we're like at church, is what we're like at work, what we're like when we pray on our knees to God. We are, we are congruent in all of our life. A person of integrity. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, let's look at our lives honestly and say, is this, is this a person of integrity who lives within as I kind of bring this to a close, I, I uh, came across a quote by Mahatma Gandhi, of course, the famous Hindu leader of, of India. And, you know, he was fascinated by Christianity, and particularly by Jesus Christ. He was fascinated by it. I didn't know he
to one another. Our lives would have a glow of meaning and joy around us because we'd be living like Jesus. And people would look at us and they'd say, oh, how those Christians love. Wouldn't that be marvelous? Can an article in the newspaper say, I've never seen such a loving group of people? That's what I want to see in the newspaper when it gets there about us. Let it be. Let it be, Lord. Let it be in us. So I want us to take a moment and, and, and just take a moment to think about that. Because again, we can't do it all. We can't do everything. We can't help every person. But God is stirring something in us, I believe. He's stirring something in your heart. He's stirring up a desire to be that kind of Christian who shows their faith by the way they love, by the way they act for their fellow man in this world. So as we go into the time of response and ministry, I'm going to invite the prayer teams if they would come up to the side. I want us to just take a few moments as the music will begin to play. We're going to just take a moment, and I want it to be quiet moment where we reflect on what God is talking to us about right now. Each one of us. Now, I would imagine that there might be a few of you out there who are, while you're maybe stirred, there might be just a touch of condemnation hanging over you right now. You might be thinking, I'm such a terrible Christian. I do none of this stuff. I just can barely get to church on a Sunday morning, let alone help anybody. And remember, I told you there was going to be a risk in the book of James of thinking, oh, I'm just, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. Oh, God must be so angry with me. And he's not. What did I say to do when you get that conviction of the Lord from the book of James? We've got a moment to get down on our knees and to offer ourselves to God in surrender and in dependence. We depend on him and only by the Holy Spirit we can be this kind of church. We can't do it because we're nice people. We're just not nice enough. No, it works that way. We do it because the Holy Spirit has taken charge of our lives. Come and take charge. So this morning, I invite you to just close your eyes and, and begin to say yes to God. Yes, Lord, I'm going to put away these things of the world, of the kingdoms of this world, and I'm going to take up. Thank you. 